to Earth to Philosophy, a conversation-based podcast with philosophers working on nature and the environment. Today on Earth to Philosophy, we're talking with Mateusz Tokarski, a PhD in environmental philosophy. Um, I worked on my PhD at the same time that Mateusz was. That's how we know each other. And Claire also hung out with us a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So we know each other pretty well. Um, And yeah, so welcome, Mateusz. Um, do you want to give us a little introduction to what you did in your PhD and what kinds of what your dissertation was about and what kinds of topics you were working on? Yeah, sure. I'll start with just the general situation and the backgrounds. So we know that um, yeah, the environment is maybe not in the best situation. We're really struggling um, with the climate, with uh, biodiversity, with species, um, you know, declines, all these things. But there are some some situations, some instances where where we had some success. In Europe, over the last decades, we could see um, several species, um, especially of mammals, returning, coming back, and growing in number. It's quite good news. Uh, you know, they're they're also spreading into um, new areas and um, some areas that we we wouldn't really expect them. So um, for once, they're they're going to agricultural areas, but they're also uh, coming to the cities. So uh, more and more often we can find uh, wild animals in cities. Uh, it's the, the phenomenon of urban wildlife is becoming quite popular. There's a lot of uh, popular books about it. There's a lot of studies about it. People are quite excited. And there's a lot of great things about it because, you know, we can show that there is there's actually things that we're doing are working, that, that the protection of animals uh, is working, that establishment of, of uh, nature protection areas is working, that uh, reintroductions are working. So that's great. But uh, there is kind of a, um, a bit of a darker side to it. You know, we, we often don't like to think about it or talk about it, um, also in kind of environmental community, but living with, with animals, especially with wild animals, occasionally can be difficult or annoying. Um, give some examples. You take uh, foxes, uh, wild boars, when they live in the cities, uh, they can cause a lot of uh, troubles, a lot of people get annoyed about it, they can attack pets, they can damage gardens, they damage houses, with uh, with wolves and bears, they can cause a threat to humans even occasionally. So yeah, these are, these are very different kinds of, of problems that the animals cause, but I've been, I started using this term ecological discomfort to talk about all these kind of things, like from just the little annoying things, you know, rabbits eating flowers in your garden, uh, all the way to, to possibly being attacked by bears or wolves. So this is the general kind of background for the project. There are animals that are um, returning, recolonizing, uh, rewilding uh, the, the places where, where a lot of people live, and that's causing a lot of problems. And now the question is, well, uh, what do we do? You know, how, how do we respond to this? Uh, do we try to push the animals away? Try, do we try to live with them? Do we develop some forms of coexistence? And if we do, uh, how do we do that? Like, how do we manage to, to live together and you know, make it work for, for everyone, for people, but also for non-humans? So that's the general context. And, Great. Uh, we should say the yeah. title, which like, already it would have given some of the context away, but it, the title of the dissertation is Wild at Home, The Ethics of Living with Discomforting Wildlife. So that sums it up. We didn't read all of the dissertation for this conversation. We read most of chapter four, which is called Wildness and the Preconditions for Meaningfulness of Nature. 
And we read all of chapter five, which is called Discomforting Encounters with Nature as Moral Experiences. Mm -hmm. And just as a note, the entire dissertation is available online. Um, and you can see it on Natasha's academia page. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. So I guess starting with chapter four, um, I guess the, the best place probably to start would be to talk about wildness. As, as we said, the title is Wildness and the Preconditions for Meaningfulness of Nature. So maybe to start with, you could give us a bit of a rundown of what the difference is between wildness or, and wilderness, if they are even different from each other. Yeah. So this is quite a, a big discussion. Wilderness is a very um, well-established and old concept in um, environmentalism and environmental philosophy. It's pretty much the, the basis of, of the American system of nature protection, of national parks. Wilderness is, 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 a, is a place, right? It's, it's a place that is uh, pretty much devoid of humans, of human impact, where wild animals live. Uh, where, where um, ecosystems flourish on their own without any impact from humans. But it's very much a concrete place. And then wildness, which is uh, um, something uh, more recent maybe, that's uh, been becoming more popular in, instead of wilderness, is, is more of a quality, is a quality of, of life, of world, um, is a quality that we can find apparently pretty much everywhere. And wildness is usually dis defined as you know, freedom of self-organization um, that's uh, not necessarily dependent on, on uh, humans, that, that uh, develops uh, without the human impact. So you can, you can describe uh, something as wild, um, even if it's um, in the city or in your house. You, know, you, can, you can have mice or rats in your house, but you can call them wild if, if they're doing what they're doing with what they want to do and not what you want to do. That's usually what they do. No, you wouldn't talk about that in terms of wilderness. And here in the context of, of this work, it's a quite important distinction because if you base uh, nature protection or if you're interested in nature only as wilderness, as these kind of places devoid of humans, uh, pure, well, then you have to travel really, really far. And we even wonder, can you even find wilderness today? You know, the, the whole... Uh, concept of Anthropocene basically claims that we have already transformed pretty much all of, of the earth and there is no pure nature anywhere, everywhere we have impacted the world somehow. So perhaps it's even impossible to do environmentalism, environmental philosophy based on the idea of wilderness. Wildness on the other hand, well it's something that, that can be found everywhere that perhaps can recover, you know, when, when we uh, step back and we allow the certain area or certain species to uh, follow their own course, then perhaps they recover certain wildness. One example would be in rewilding. Um, there is a program very popular in Netherlands where, where we did uh, our, our PhD, is to rewild species. For example, species of uh, domestic cattle have been uh, kind of Backbred have been then allowed to readjust to living wildlife and to develop uh, capacities to survive on their own and to do what they want. We can say perhaps uh, it's questionable, but but we could probably say that these animals have recovered some wildness. You know, they're not pure because they have for a certain time been influenced quite significantly by humans, but now they live an independent life uh, following their own course developing independently from human desire yeah so can you talk about 
then the idea that you're developing of this encounter, this discomforting encounter, like how does this link up with the question of wildness? And maybe mm-hmm. use that to talk about what you mean when you're talking about discomfort. Like it's not like physical mm-hmm. discomfort, right? It's it's much bigger than that in important yeah. ways. So uh, maybe starting with discomfort, as I mentioned before, it's a very, very broad term and I'm using it precisely because it could be understood in a very broad way and fairly neutral, I guess, in terms of, of uh, evaluation. But discomfort could be something physical. It could be something as simple as, you know, uh, being stung by a mosquito, uh, something as simple as being annoyed because um, I don't know, foxes made a den under your porch. You know, so it could be it could be physical, it could be material, but yes, it's it's broader. It can be also, um, or it can obviously be psychological. It can be connected to fear, anxiety that one can feel um, in confrontation with animals. Of course, I mean, we probably would be quite scared being confronted with with a wolf or a bear. Really. Are, even scared, confronted, you know, with with a fox or something. You you don't really know what the animal might do, Um, especially people living in cities who are not used to living with wild animals at all. Such confrontations can be very troubling, especially when they realize that these animals, you know, you don't know what they can, what they will do. You uh, maybe start by treating them as just cute little uh, things that look nice and run away. And, you know, that's great. But uh, when they stop running away and they start looking at you or coming closer, that can can get a little bit uh, troubling. And finally, um, well, there is there is a, a more complicated sort of discomfort, and here I guess we get to to the meaning is that um, these animals can also very much challenge the ways uh, we conceive of our surroundings. Uh, they can even challenge our own identity. So. One good example is, you know, we think about our home or our property as, as our, as, as in control, as having certain borders. You can call them kind of symbolic borders, right? When you have a, a, um, walls and, and the doors and fence around your yard, and this is your space. And, and uh, when an animal uh, enters this space, uh, it says, well, no, maybe it's not just your space. Maybe you don't have a full control. Uh, maybe it's actually a great place for me to hang out and uh, to start living here. And that's a challenge to how we think about about the world, about our world, um, about our closest environments, and that can be quite troubling as well. So this is kind of this this scope of, of the of the idea of of discomfort. Now, how does connect to wildness? Some of the examples I give in in chapter four is is connected to the fascination that uh, many environmentalists and wildlife managers, conservationists, rewilders have with uh, wolves, for example, but also with beavers, let's say. Uh, these are two very different examples, but they're not that different. The thing is that both of these animals are uh, considered keystone species, which means that their impact is quite huge, even with small numbers. Even when there's a few beavers, they can completely transform the whole uh, landscape. The same with uh, wolves. Just a few wolves, just one pack, can have incredible impact on on the landscape. Sticking to beavers, you know, they build dams, they flood the area. That completely changes the way what kind of species will live there, both plants and animals. It will create spaces for animals to live. 
So here you see this kind of idea of wildness or even recreation of wildness because the, 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 there is a recreation of ecosystem which is starting to live on its own uh, and develop very often in ways that are not so welcomed by people. For, for many farmers, this is really annoying when their, you know, their, their farm gets flooded. So you see that that's recovery of wildness, the, in, the recovery of independence and the development um, of these ecosystems can very often then lead to negative consequences for people. So I guess when a lot of people go out for a walk in nature or something that, you know, they're often thinking, okay, I'll go and I'll have a nice walk in the woods and I'll reconnect with nature, especially in Europe, that generally means you'll have a nice walk in the woods. <laughs> that, will, yeah. that will be it. Maybe you'll see a bird or, or yeah. deer or something. Um, but in general, you won't really be overly challenged by going out into nature in yeah. this way. So in Chapter 4, you talk about how wildness and discomfort that it brings can actually give or I guess open up new meanings, would that be a way to phrase it, um, mm-hmm. in our connections with nature? Uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how that meaning comes about through that discomfort when we experience nature that's not so pleasant and easy to get along with. Sure. So that's true. As you said, we, we usually go for a stroll and you know, we we want to see something pretty. Uh, we want to uh, cool cool a little bit, uh, not listen to the noise, uh, no cars, breathe a little bit of fresh air, uh, look at pretty flowers. And you know, that's that's great, and that's important as well. You know, beauty, uh, that's great. But there are also uh, ways in which uh, we can be challenged uh, more seriously that can be, I think, quite conducive to development of, uh, let's say, environmental identity or to understanding differently our relation to the non-human world. So this is this is where, where the more, uh, let's say, uh, gruesome part of the, uh, the, the project starts because it deals a lot with very uh, direct confrontations with, with predators that can threaten human life. And there's a lot of literature, um, a lot. well, there are a few uh, very interesting uh, papers and stories about it. But the idea is that you go to the woods and you just want to, you know, have fun, see pretty things, uh, entertain yourself or relax, fine. Or you go uh, because, you know, this is because you're a manager and you want to see if the forest is doing fine, if it's, you know, the trees are growing straight or if there are species that you want. Things like that. So this is another also form of engaging with, with nature. It's very instrumental, but it also is very common um, in Europe. Practically all forests are, you know, industrial forests, <laughs> especially in Poland, where I come from. That's that's what it is. You just see pines, rows and rows of pines going straight. That's what that's what the forest is. There. But there, you know, when the wolves and the bears return, let's say you're walking around long and you know, you hear something, you see something, you smell something, you think, okay, this is this could be a wolf, this could be a bear. And you know that they've been hanging around, like they've been coming back, they've been passing through. The idea is, um, and this is something that I, I based on the stories of people who have been experiencing this and write, writing about this, that uh, suddenly in this moment you feel something, you feel something different, you feel something different about yourself. Uh, you start feeling like you could be basically food to these animals because that's what could happen. They they eat 
meat and what you are, you're for them just a piece of meat. Uh, you know, you're not uh, Mateusz Tokarski with a name, PhD, whatever. Uh, you know, they don't care. Uh, they care whether you're, uh, you know, you're tasty and what is human. Like we, we don't have claws. We are not very good at protecting ourselves uh, against animals in direct combat. You, you are potentially their food. And that's a completely different way of thinking about yourself. And that's a completely different way of thinking about your relationship to another animal. For a very long time, we have been thinking as the you know, pinnacle of creation and as being in control of what happens on Earth and as being you know, the rulers uh, or the guardians or whatever you wanted. But here you feel yourself dragged into the kind of ecosystem and into the trophic relationships and to, to, to this kind of economy, natural economy of eating and being eaten. And this is, yeah, this is different. And this can be a, a really horrific experience, I guess, uh, just, just kind of mentally, um, because here the, there is this creation of a new meaning, meaning in terms of like your identity, which is something quite important to us, quite meaningful to us. Who am I? Uh, what am I? What is my relation to, to others? Yeah, and you suddenly see this in a completely different way. You know, this, this can be, um, be challenging, uh, not just to just a, a regular person who never thought about it uh, before, who never thought about environmental things. Um, this can be challenging for um, environmentalists, people very engaged in nature protection. There is um, um, a story that I use a lot. Uh, it's a true story. Um, of Val Plumwood, who, uh, who was an Australian environmental philosopher, and she uh, once was attacked by a crocodile. And when she writes about this experience, she says that in that moment, she suddenly realized that deep inside, you know, she, she was always teaching about how we are all equal to animals, how we're all part of, of ecosystems, of environment. But suddenly in that moment when she was being dragged into water by a crocodile, she realized she never really believed deep inside in what she was saying. Suddenly all this just came crashing on her and she thought, oh my God, I am actually food. Now I understand that. It's just terrible. She lived then. She lived. Yeah, yeah. She survived that. Uh, she survived and she, she, uh, she wrote uh, really wonderful, well, almost stories, but they, they're kind of uh, fabularized uh, essays about this experience. Uh, they're really great and they really well show how uh, these encounters can be horrific, but at the same time how they can bring out uh, really uh, very many new meanings and they can be very rich, in a way rewarding, well, if you're lucky enough to get out of it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think Andrea wanted to talk more about this crocodile attack or maybe crocodiles in general. But um, I just wanted, before we get on to that, I just wanted to quickly then ask you about that idea that um, encountering danger in this way opens us up to new meanings. Is that danger some kind of prerequisite for accessing these new meanings? Or are there more uh, placid ways in which a walk in the woods could, some some other encounter in some maybe some other unexpected you stumble across a species of tree that you thought was extinct or whatever it is that that yeah. might introduce the same kind of experience um yeah i think you know there's no absolutes here and there is no one right way i mean we talked a bit earlier about the the experience of beauty and that's that's one way of experiencing nature that's highly meaningful and just admiring beauty is one of the things to do it 
But I think there's something uh, quite specific about this danger uh, or this kind of possibility of threat, and it has to do a little bit with the recovery of wildness we talked about a little bit earlier as well. And it has to do with this kind of basic precondition for, for what it is for people to experience meaning or find meaning in the world. Trying not to get too technical about it, the general idea is that when we, when we seek uh, meaningful things, we find meaning in encounter with the external world, something that's outside of us that's independent. So uh, here, human relations are a really good example. And um, well, this is something uh, that I, I uh, take mostly from um, a colleague of ours, uh, Glenn de Liege, who, who uh, worked on this a little bit, although in different contexts. But the idea is if you uh, want to establish a relationship with another person, let's say a friendship, you cannot force it. You know, you cannot force somebody else to be a friend with you. You have, you have to be open to the possibility of denial. You can only establish friendship with somebody else who is a free person who can give you the friendship freely or to deny it. So the idea is that finding a meaning in the world is depending on the possibility that you will not find that meaning. It's a little bit of a kind of paradoxical feeling, but uh, paradoxical thing, but you know, that's one of those kind of existential difficult things about human life. You, you can only find love a friend when you're willing to, to lose a friend or lose a love or to be rejected. We can force it. And the idea in encounters with nature is that many people feel like we are, well, many people want to connect with nature, want to find meaning in nature, uh, but they feel like nature is no longer something external. You know, we have been controlling it, transforming it, impacting it so much that it's no longer this kind of independent external world with which we can connect. And where, where I think that this threat, this possibility of threat, is something where people find this proof that it is independent again, yet again. Uh, maybe it wasn't previously, but now it is becoming again. We we give it, we grant it a possibility to refuse us, to say no to our attempt to contact. It doesn't have to be, you know, just refusal. Or it could be refusal. It could be basically, I'm going to a forest and I want to see deer or boars. And you know, we we go to a zoo and you want to see them, you see them because they're there, they're purposefully put there so you can see them. But if you go to a forest, well, you don't know if you're going to see them because they have their own life and they can, they can happen to be there or they can not be there. And, you know, this is kind of a possibility of this denial. And this possibility of denial can also happen in a more uh, drastic fashion, as in the uh, threatening instances or in instances where they do precisely something that we don't want with, with the landscape. So the beavers flood our field or our garden, or so the, the foxes, not foxes, but some, some, some animals chew through tables uh, in our house. This is kind of the sense of, of, of denial, of unruliness that, that, that links to the sense of externality of the world that, that it allows us to connect to it and feel like we are connecting with something real and this connection is real. It's not forced, it's, it's, it's given it's, and it's received by us. It seems like a kind of partly also a denial of what we expect nature to give us as well, mm -hmm. like and what we feel we're entitled to if we go yeah. for a nice walk somewhere or something, that mm -hmm. it should present itself in some way. Um, and as you say, you, you can go to the zoo for that if you want a guarantee, but that's lacking in, in me yeah. in a quite significant way. 
Do you want to go back to the crocodile? <laughs> Her story is so perfect for what you're trying to bring out. Yeah, yeah I guess in environmental philosophy, it's like not every day that you come across like life and death, right? But like in Valpone, <laughs> what you do, like she almost died. If I could, if I could just um, say something here. Uh, you say we, we environmental philosophy, we don't come often in a life and death situations. Well, the thing is, we kind of do, as long as it's the animals, you know, right. as long as the animals doing it to themselves, that's that's fine. We can discuss that, and that's that's a lot of things written about that. It's, yeah. it's also a big problem, but uh, you know, um, for 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 some ideas. But when it comes to to people and animals, or people being threatened by animals, this is something that we don't find very often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've already kind of summarized Val Plumwood's experience with the crocodile, but maybe then, maybe also summarize your telling of it, your interpretation of it in the chapter as being addressed, being questioned, and answering the question yeah. of the interpretation. Yeah. So um, I had to add something, although this is a fantastic experience and, you know, it's hard to add to, to, to what she writes because it's, uh, it's, really, uh, it's a really fantastic story and she develops it quite well. But, you know, I had to add something. So I added a, a framework, a way of, of thinking about her own experience. Uh, this is a framework from hermeneutics, is the idea of hermeneutics of moral experience. Moral experience, you know, that's... Uh, fairly common, uh, I guess, concept in, in ethics and in philosophy. It, it's, it's an experience in which we are confronted with a very difficult moral situation that kind of challenges us and stops us short. And we want, what happened? What do I do? But the idea of hermeneutics of moral experience is to try to really understand what happens. Why am I so flabbergasted by what happened? What different meanings fight uh, for attention? So it, it's focused on understanding. Um, other philosophers in, in, say, pragmatism would be focusing more on, on action. What should we do in such instances? Here I focus more on the, on the aspect of understanding. We could uh, distinguish three kind of stages, and one of them is being addressed, which is being addressed by the world. Uh, something happens, and we are, we are or we are not, uh, as might happen open to, to this address, open to, to this event that kind of challenges us and demands of us to, to do something. And this is kind of a basic precondition to even get into the moral experience. The second um, stage kind of or aspect of it, because it's not, you know, uh, one after another kind of things happening at once, but another aspect of it is being challenged. So a moral experience is, per definition, um, being us being questioned and us realizing that what ha- we have been thinking so far is insufficient or in some way lacking, and that we need to rethink what we have been thinking so far and what we believe so far. And this is one of the, the kind of psychologically uh, painful aspects of it, you know, because you realize that, that, well, you have been wrong and you could have been wrong about the most fundamental things. And the, the third aspect is, is, a, is an interpretation, is coming to understand what is it that's actually happening. Because, you know, you're being challenged, you're being showed that uh, what you believe so far is wrong, but that means that you're in new territory. You don't know now what is really right. But you know that there is something in this experience that's kind of suggesting that what's been so far there, it's not enough, and you have to start thinking and find something else. 
So the third aspect is to kind of interpret this event to, to try to understand what does it say and what does it demand of me to, to do or to, to rethink what I have been thinking so far. Yeah, okay. Maybe I'll ask my stupid question, and I think that will bring us into talking about moral experiences maybe a little bit more generally. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like like I said, I'm very sympathetic with this account, and, like, I, yeah, I love her account, the Crocodile Encounter. But it does also make me think, like, as probably as someone who hasn't had an experience like this, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious why we, not just you and us but like people in general why we place so much meaning or emphasis on moments of like epiphany or like aha moments or moments where like you really break through to something different these are taken in this in her account and like in general like we think of these as times where you realize you've been mistaken and like you're breaking into this new this truer world Mm -hmm. And like Plumwood even says, you've been to the limits, you've seen the stars change their course. And then later she says, she says, you realize that the world was not like that. It's it's this epistemological question, too, that mm-hmm. somehow what you took to be true before isn't. And it's shown to you that it's not true any longer. Mm-hmm. And so the stupid question is, well, wait, why do we know then? Like, why do we know at this moment that really we were mistaken? And why do we place so much value on these kinds of breakthrough yeah. moments yeah. as epistemologically important and also, in this case, like morally and ethically important? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I guess a cruel answer uh, would be to say that to the question, how do you know that this is true or truer, is that, uh, well, you don't. <laughs> One of the things uh, Gadamer says, um, Hans-Gerald Gadamer is a, a philosopher, a hermeneuticist who also worked a lot on the, um, on the idea of moral experience. He says that one of the uh, most important insights you can probably get from a moral experience is that you don't know for sure. Uh, you realize, so this is not, this moral experience is, or is not even about finding something concrete, finding some specific truth about this specific situation. But it's, it's, it's realizing this, this uh, more general insight that you are a limited person with a limited view on, on the world and you never know for sure. You interpret, you, you try to make the best sense you can of the world and of the situation and what you should be doing, let's say, and if we're talking about ethical issues, but you won't know for sure. And there will be probably in the future another more experience that can tell you uh, or that it can show you that, well, you still, uh, there is something else yet, something else that you have missed. Maybe it's not necessarily that it will overthrow what you have been thinking so far, but it will add uh, something to it, uh, some, some nuance or some significant aspect that you haven't thought about. And why do we um, think about it? Well, because um, I guess we want to know, we, we search for truth, right? I mean, if, if we don't, and I guess uh, if you uh, prefer to stick with alternative facts and, you know, all these kind of things, if you're not interested in truth, you're not interested in truth and, and you will not be that much concerned about moral experience and finding uh, something that's, that's, that's truer. But generally, for, for most of us, truth is something important and we look for it still, still we do. And that's why these, these moments, these moments of epiphany where we find out that we, we think we understand now better are um, so important 
because they, they put us closer to truth. For me, it seems like these kinds of encounters that you're talking about that challenge what you believe to be true or what you've understood to be um, the case about the world and yourself. It's not necessarily that they then reveal some some truer thing, but it's about a, a sort of enlarging of experience, right? Like being able to, to know that there's more perspectives on something and that, you know, for Val Plumwood, that might, that was the the perspective of the crocodile of her it's about accepting another perspective which she can't she won't necessarily be able to access all the time because later on when she goes about her normal life and she's lecturing on philosophy in a lecture hall she's not in that moment existentially aware of being something food but she can she's enlarged her experience in a way that that knowledge that she can be seen as food is there so that that sort of seems to me like what is important about that which makes me um sort of brings me as well to a question i have about these kinds of experiences so in in the case of val plumwood in the way that she tells the story she's out looking for something to make her trip meaningful right you describe in chapter five how she's paddling around it's it's raining, it's kind of miserable, she's not having that nice of a time maybe, but she wants to find something, have some kind of meaningful encounter in this lagoon that she's in in Australia to, like I guess, justify or make worthwhile her journey. And then she comes across this crocodile and it attacks her. So in a way she was looking for this, this meaning or this significant thing, but of course she didn't plan to get attacked by a crocodile. So I wonder as well if it's, like is spontaneity really crucial is i mean if you if you know that there are crocodiles in this lagoon and you go and you have them sort of knowing that your chances of getting attacked are high is the experience that results from that able to also be a moral experience or is spontaneity yeah. necessary well it would be it would be quite quite interesting to to find a person who's actually intentionally going around looking for uh, you know uh, we would get again into this kind of um, paradox that we talked a little bit beforehand that that you can't force it, right? Um, I mean, you can seek it, I guess. Uh, we can seek friendship. We cannot force it. And sometimes it's a it's a delicate balance. We don't always know where where is the you know a border. And I think that the the problem is well, if you uh, force an animal to to eat you. Well, you're forcing it to eat you. Uh, what, what are you doing? You're just trying to find confirmation for something you already have, for some kind of idea you already have. So I think there there is a certain sense in which that there is a, a spontaneity that, that probably is intrinsic to these events. And well, I would I would, I would expect that a person who is actually intentionally going out there seeking to be um, you know, eaten, they might, or attacked, they might find in that moment when they are actually maybe being attacked that, oh, they're finding something about themselves. And why have I been so stupid trying to do this? Uh, well, because maybe there is some kind of problem I'm trying to deal with here that reaches back to some kind of event in my life back then, you know, hypothesizing. But that being said, it actually is an interesting question because now it brings to my mind the the question of wilderness experience or the idea of wilderness experience, which is something very popular in in environmental writings, in nature writing, which is basically of people 
who decides to go to wilderness to have a wilderness experience and who are saying, well, I go there and I want to have a contact with wild and I accept that bad things will happen to me, you know, or that they might happen to me. And still, as we read these accounts, they seem to have had some interesting, really interesting experiences. Maybe what happens here is that they were opening themselves to these experiences. They were enforcing them, but they were rather opening themselves out to it and saying, okay, I am ready, I'm willing to encounter something, and I don't know what it will be. Maybe there will be something, maybe they, they won't, maybe it will be, maybe I have an idea of what I will find out, but, but very likely I don't. So I think this is maybe what we have to kind of consider here. Are you searching for this experience to force something, to force some insight, or are you searching for it to open yourself to the world? Because, you know, we don't maybe, as you say, she was lecturing there and maybe she wasn't then thinking about herself as, as being flesh, right? Uh, as being meat. Because we, for most of our lives, we just go on kind of autopilot and, and we have certain assumptions and it's all very fine. But there are moments in our lives when we think, okay, I'm going out and I'm ready to, to experience something and to see something different. You know, that's why I guess we go for exotic holidays and that's why we go to uh, a hike for two weeks through the mountains. So I think as long as it's this kind of opening up but not forcing, then I think it, it still kind of works, still kind of describes how this, this experience looks like. I think on that, then, I wonder as well about who has these kinds of experiences, right? So Val Plumwood is, was an environmental philosopher, so ready, as you say, in, some, in many ways, probably more open yeah. to such things than your average person. And I think there would be some people who would be more open than others to experiences in general and to sort of... Mm-hmm. Uh, to being able to reflect on, oh, what does this mean in particular? Because one thing I was thinking about um, in this story was that some people might have interpreted her decision not to have the crocodile hunted down and killed as the moral decision, right? But that's not what she, well, that's not what you identify as being kind of the, the main moral moment. It might also yeah. be a moral moment, but it's not like the main moral experience in, in yeah. her that decision although it's connected to it because she decides not to have it hunted down because she's accepted that she went into its territory yes but it's still in the moment of encounter with the crocodile that she had uh an experience which you've described as moral because of the way it was structured i suppose in the way that she she experienced it so i wonder a, a bit about I, this might not be a question that you can really answer but like if you're not already that kind of person who's open do you yeah. think that having such an encounter might nonetheless, I guess, trigger something like that? Yeah, I think the idea is that that it triggers. The idea is that it probably not always. Um, we very often close ourselves down to, to, to these experiences or this, this kind of call that is made on us or the demand that is being made on us. It happens. And I guess it can be described as a failure as a moral failure or as a hermeneutic failure. But I think very often also this kind of experience 
can have such a such a force, such a power that that they do crack as open. Basically, like you know, if you, you just use this kind of metaphorical language, like it's it's strong enough to crack the shell, and there's nothing he can do about it. And maybe sometimes the blow is too much, and we again just have to lock ourselves up because because it's just too much, and we can't take it. So, so these are all uh, kind of possibilities, you know. This is this is not a exact science. Uh, it's it's life and it's existential moments, and they they can go many different ways. But I think occasionally it can open us, even if we're if we're close to to it. And I think here, well, coming back a little bit to the to the wilderness and wilderness experience, the idea is basically that sometimes we're more more open. Sometimes there are uh, certain activities or certain places where we are more open. You know, when we we're at home, we feel like this is our space and this is where we're comfortable and we don't want to be disturbed here. And you know, if some guest comes in and starts telling us how we should change everything, we're like, no, 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 no. This is my house. I do it the way I want. But if we're going out, we're going to a public space, we're, well, maybe more open to, to, to suggestions or to changes. Uh, in the same way, when we go to the wilderness, we kind of accept the fact that, well, it, and this is something that repeatedly occurs in, in the accounts of people who go to these kind of wilderness experiences. They say, we go to these places accepting that of animals and that they can do things and we cannot complain about it. And that was, you know, also the point of, of, of Val Plumwood. Don't kill the crocodile. I entered its territory. I took the responsibility for my action. And this is just what happened. But this is also a problematic thing for uh, for urban wildlife. Because, you know, they're, they're coming to places we think about as, as our places. As, you know, we've been living here. This is our home. This is how we run things here. But that's why in this context, in this urban context, uh, moral experience is so radical because it is not something that we already accept. It is not a place where we're already open to these things. It's a place where we are most at home and we don't want to be challenged. But then things happen and maybe we, we, we are challenged or we start thinking, well, let's open ourselves to this and see what, what happens, see what we can uh, learn. But then again, you know, a lot of people will find that much more challenging, much more troubling, much more of a discomfort. So one more question for me is about moral experiences more generally. Mm-hmm. This sounds like a distinctive kind of moral experience where you're you're challenged in this way. I, I don't know Gadamer very well or whether you have your own sort of ideas on what what other kinds of moral experiences there are, possibly out in, in nature as well, like by experiencing beauty, for example, or, um, you know, in ways that aren't discomforting, um, can they still be moral experiences? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, so Gadamer also talks more generally about experience as such, and what is experience, and it's it's kind of a similar, the same idea, pretty much. Uh, it just doesn't necessarily connect to an ethical or moral dimension. So you mentioned beauty, uh, definitely uh, uh, an aesthetic experience. That's something, right? And I think here, when we talk about think about nature, uh, you can talk about this experience of of having a, a moment of let's say disinterested uh, fascination with something, right? When you you could have a very uh, instrumental attitude to nature when you mostly see it as kind of well, what is it useful for right what can i make with it what can i use it uh, how is it good for me 
but then through through let's say an experience of beauty of something you look at the flower or a tree or or something you start noticing that well this has a life of its own this has a form of its own a structure of its own perhaps a way of of, of, of developing of its own and you start uh, kind of going out from from your own head so to say and you try to, to see this this entity without reference to your own interest. And this is this is basically a, a, this could be an example of a, of a aesthetic experience of an experience of beauty um, that also shows you a completely different way of looking at the world. And you know, like with Valkumud, we maybe know in principle that you can see things like that, but then do you really experience that? Then there is this moment where you really experience that and you know, oh yeah, uh, so far I only just talked about it. Now I, I actually see it, that this is a living being of its own. And of course this can also then go uh, to a moral experience as it often does. And it's often described in environmental philosophy as leading to this kind of idea that, well, it's got a good of its own and therefore it should be uh, respected for itself. But it could start as, as, a, as an aesthetic experience, certainly. So it's a general idea of an experience where, where your um, preconceptions are basically challenged and uh, you, you, you notice the limitation of your perspective and you see something more, you, something you see differently. As you said, you enrich kind of the way uh, you see things. Was adopting Leela a moral experience for you? <laughs> um, this, this question's for Claire. Yeah. yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot about my dog while we've been talking <laughs> about the possibility of rejection that when we first had her that it was very strong this sense that she might reject me or she is rejecting me in some way and that I was seeking a bond with her and I had to let it happen on its own um, but in addition to that the sense that she's a dog like no matter how much I think of her as my little companion dogs can do things that you don't expect them to do Mm-hmm. or they can disobey your commands mm-hmm. no matter how well trained they are and there's always that sense that I have when I'm out with her because she's such a hunter that I don't have I never have full control over her mm-hmm. and also which is a reason I always laugh when I see signs around when I go for walks that say dogs allowed off leash if they are under control I'm like <laughs> no dog is really under control <laughs> that's not a dog that exists like it just to me, it seems insane because they're just, they're, they're instinctive animals still. So you can't really squash that out of them. But yeah, it's been a, it's been a big moral experience. Yeah. Adopting her. <laughs> well, I'll ask what you're up to now. And I think you have plans to publish your dissertation. So tell us about that. Yeah, hopefully. So it's at the moment under review and uh, hopefully it will be accepted. So um, I'm waiting to hear. Congratulations. Yeah. Sorry. Well, not, not yet. But Bring her. Well, yeah. But... It has been accepted. Uh, now it's through one review. One review has been positive. We're just waiting for the second reviewer. Uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, well, then you can start collecting money to buy it because it's probably going to be ridiculously expensive. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, I'm still... Occasionally writing. I'm, I'm mostly working now um, as an editor in literature and in, in science. I'm writing a bit as well. I'm, I'm trying to kind of see how some of the things from, from the, the, the project can work out as, um, as stories. Uh, there were some positive opinions, but, but 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Um, and then occasionally I'm writing uh, some papers as well, uh, but also uh, I'm kind of broadening up a little bit scope of interest. So I, I recently wrote a paper in more kind of literature studies and it should be, it will be published next year. Yeah. Where's the best place for people to find your work if they're looking for it? Is it academia? Uh, yeah, you can you can find it in academia. You can find the uh, papers, most of the papers there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think we've covered it really nicely. And I think if we ask more of the questions, at least I have, they would un-end un the ending. <laughs> <laughs> that was really interesting. Thank you. Can yeah. You to us? yeah. Super great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Earth to Philosophy. Our website, again, is www.earthtophilosophy.com. Feel free to send us an email with thoughts or questions or topics or people you'd like us to cover.